Hey there, Bulldogs. I'm Mr. Rabulin, and welcome to Rabuland. Thanks for joining me on another edition of Welcome to Rabuland, where we explore the field of psychology while preparing you for the AP Psych Exam. Today, we'll be going over topic 7.6 in the AP curriculum, where we will be discussing the various theories of emotion arising from the psychodynamic school of thought. If you're following along in my PowerPoint, I'm going to be going over topic 7.6, which should correlate with your Cornell notes. Now, the psychodynamic or the psychoanalytic theories of personality and emotion are really the first school of thought that we see arise in modern psychology. Now, remember, the field of psychology is a very young science. It's only been around since maybe the 1880s, 1890s, and really it all started with one man, or generally considered to be the father of psychology, and his name is Sigmund Freud. Now, if you have taken any class with uh, psychology before, or just been exposed to psychology in general, you've most likely heard of Sigmund Freud. Now, just as a caveat before we continue any further, the psychoanalytic or the psychoanalytic and the psychodynamic theories, um, as they come from Freud, are riddled with a lot of things that we wouldn't normally consider to be accurate science in our day-to-day life. However, we do realize that as the initial thoughts within the field, we have a lot of theories, a lot of modern-day theories that would not have existed if not for Freud's, um, if not for Freud's understanding of human personality or even thoughts about it. So it's important that we take the time to study him. Uh, that's why this entire podcast is dedicated to understanding Freud's particular understanding of personality and the human psyche. So as we look at Freud's uh, theory, we have to understand that there's a lot of levels to this. So I'm really going to be going a little bit slower than normal in order to help you understand kind of the ins and outs of Freud's original psychoanalytic theory. So within psychology... Um, or within Freud's um, understanding of the human psyche. He assumes from his uh, work with patients, he actually was a medical doctor um, more than just a psychologist. As he did work with his patients, he assumed that a lot of the, what we would call mental symptoms that his patients were coming in with really... From, for him, arise from a place uh, within the unconscious. Now, um, if you're looking at my PowerPoint, you're going to see an iceberg. And generally in psychology, in most introductory psychology classes in the country, uh, you're going to see this picture of the iceberg. Now, the iceberg, or if you guys know how an iceberg works, it's basically a huge, 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 huge piece of ice. And... A lot of it that we see on the surface um, is actually minimal in comparison to what lies beneath the surface. So Freud is going to say that a lot of what drives human personality and human behavior is really going to emerge from deep down within the human 
soul, the human mind, okay? And I say soul because um, the the word psychology comes from the Greek word psyche or suche, which is soul, okay? That's where we get the psyche idea from. So for him, what you see on the outside is the conscious, okay? And most people are aware of what's on the outside, okay? Like, that's observable behavior. You're going to be aware of that, things that are in front of you, okay? Now, the psychoanalytic theories are also going to say that there's something called a pre-conscious. Now, this is stuff uh, within the psyche that's just underneath the surface. So it's pretty visible. Sometimes it isn't. But, you know, if we take a little bit of time to think about it, we know it's there. Like, for example, like when you see somebody who makes you angry, I guess. Um, And especially if that anger is pretty recent in the history of your friendship, you're going to know that that's where it's coming from. Like, it's there. And so that gut reaction that you may have, like in the pit of your stomach or just that, like, intense emotional feeling that you may get when seeing somebody who's uh, who maybe makes you angry um those um those uh particular instances between you and him or her um may be really recent and so it may be really easy for you to access and that's what's in the pre-conscious now let's say that you meet somebody completely new um and Let's say that that person also brings out a lot of anger in you, okay? Now, you may not know why this person brings out anger in you. You may think, like, it's so random that my initial reaction to you was to be angry. Freud would tell you that the source of your anger doesn't necessarily come from the person, but who this person may represent, in your unconscious and this is where you get the common understandings of like oh so um or very common uh thing to see in like american media when it talks when we talk about freud is like oh tell me about your mother um because freud really attributes a lot of human personality to the way that we deal with that with our parents and the way that we relate to authority figures in our lives. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. I'm getting ahead of myself. But the point is that a lot of what we understand about our human personality actually exists in the unconscious. It's beyond our natural awareness. And the only way to bring that out is in therapy, okay? It's in the guided discussions that um, exist between the therapist and the patient okay or the client as we now call patients who come in for therapy or at least in the psychotherapy world okay now freud had a lot of different um instruments or things in his toolbox okay or um different techniques that he would use to help people access the unconscious so for example he would frequently ask his um he would ask his uh, clients or his patients, I should say, to relate words or thoughts or emotions to a particular word he would put out there. And that's called free association. So, for example, he would say something like love, and you would write down or you would say the first thing that comes to your mind, or sex, or play, or 
water or something like that. And so this like very off the cuff kind of like bring it out um, into the open kind of technique really to Freud meant that we were accessing the deeper part of ourselves. Okay. And this is where when you listen to a later lecture or if you've listened to it before um, you've listened to this one um, where we talk about projective tests and the value of projective tests, those projective tests like the Rorschach inkblot test and the thematic apperception test, those are ambiguous figures and um, stories and pictures. And the stories that come out or the, the thoughts or the emotions or the, the images that come out of those particular tests are really within this idea of free association. So Freud is going to love doing that with his clients. Um, another thing that you may be familiar with just in your normal life is the idea of a Freudian slip. Now, Freudian slip is that moment when somebody says something and they don't really mean to say that, but then low-key, these people do mean to say that. So it's, so, uh, I don't know, of an accurate or an off-the-cuff kind of um, example where let's say that, uh, okay, I'm coming up with something on the spot. So let's say that um, a person that you're talking to, uh, or a very classic example, you see this in a lot of like rom-coms and a lot of uh, a lot of these types of uh, movies, or it's like, I really like you. And it's like, oh my God, I didn't mean to say that, but you did. And so Freud would say, you really didn't mean to say that. Um, and then another thing that, uh, so that's the example of a Freudian slip. Now, another thing that Freud loved to do is this idea of dream interpretation. Now, if you guys remember my lecture on sleep and dreaming and all that other stuff, you'll remember that Freud really loved the idea of interpreting dreams. And in fact, Freud's disciples, like people who ended up following him in expanding the idea of psychodynamic theory and things like that, really looked at dream interpretation as a way to help clients access the unconscious. So that's a really, really important part of, again, Freud being able to help people access the unconscious. Now, we're going to take a short pause in uh, discussing Freud's psychodynamic theory. So catch up with your notes and I'll come back in the next segment to talk a little bit more about what happens when we do access the unconscious. What can we expect to find there according to Freud and the rest of his um, followers after that in, you know, in the evolving psychodynamic theory that comes out of Freud's original thoughts. So within the unconscious, Freud kind of conceptualizes three people, imagine, um, in that section of your soul, your mind, um, and they exist underneath the, underneath the, I guess, the waters of your thoughts, okay? If we're looking back at the iceberg model that we saw earlier in the PowerPoint. Okay, now within the unconscious, there are three people, like I said, one of them is known as the id, the other one is known as the ego, and the other one is known as the superego. Now, you kind of have to imagine that within your mind, there are two people fighting, 
Okay. <coughs> so the id is like the devil on your shoulder. If you guys have ever seen that type of idea, like you have that guy or that girl, and then one on one side is the angel, the other one is the devil. Uh, I'm just saying it's uh, the angel and the devil because it's easier for us to understand. And it does kind of make sense when I explain each of these different parts. Okay, So the id is the devil on your shoulder. So if you're looking at the example that I provided in your PowerPoint, your id is the part of you that wants to maximize as much pleasure as possible. So, for example, if you have a problem with not really a problem, but if you love to eat, like love to eat, um, as I love to eat, you may know that. Um, so if you eat a lot or overeat and you're, you're that type of person who is literally walking out of a buffet restaurant, like, and you know, you've eaten too much, but you've enjoyed every single part of it. Freud would say that your id is very strong and the id operates off of something called the pleasure principle. So the goal of the id is to maximize as much pleasure as possible. Now, that can be pretty um, problematic if you think about the way that human life works. You know, like there, there are limits to the amount of pleasure that we can really give ourselves and to the point where we come in contact with other forces and other people's ids that may necessarily block us from actually enjoying what we want to enjoy. Um, so there's that. But the id is just this unlimited desiring of pleasure, okay? Now, on the other hand, the angel on your, the, on your shoulder is the superego. Now, the superego is the combination of all of the social norms, the morals, the rules that you have accrued over your lifetime and this is where freud is really gonna say that society and your parents have a big role in forming this super ego so the super ego operates off of the morality principle it's always going to talk about is this the best thing for you to do and the super ego the, the goal of the superego is to avoid as much guilt as possible, knowing that you are disobeying the rules. And so, um, so for example, if this is, the id says, I want chocolate and I want it now and I want every form of chocolate and I want to eat the entire bar and I'll buy another bar and I'll just keep it eating and eating and eating. The superego will be like, but you're on a diet. You have to eat healthy. You have to eat only fruits and vegetables and not even fruits because there's so much sugar. And As you can tell, I have a lot of experience with this um and so the super ego is going to guilt you as much as possible to avoid uh breaking the rules so um freud kind of like associates either one uh the id or the super ego with like if there's an imbalance that has to do something with the relationships that you formed over um, your lifetime and we're actually going to talk about that within this segment but um, so what happens when the id and the superego clash like obviously one of them is going to have to win right or maybe not um, this is where the ego comes in so if you have the angel and the devil and they're both wrestling in the same arena the ego is the referee this is really the the part of your personality the part of your unconscious that is going to 
try to mediate between the id and the superego. Because if you really think about it, the id and the superego exist within the the supernatural, I guess you would say. It is impossible to so, to fulfill all of your desires as much as you may want to. But it's also un like it's also unhelpful if you constantly live your life as a person who just lives by the rules. Like obviously we live in a human society where um where it will be impossible to follow every rule perfectly. So um this is where the ego comes in and mediates between the two. So it operates off of something called the reality principle. You want to avoid as much pain as possible, but you also want to avoid as much punishment as possible. So the ego will tell you, instead of eating all the chocolate or eating no chocolate, satisfy yourself with a small bit of chocolate. Enjoy your chocolate, but have a small bit. And so this ego really does the work of mediating between the two, okay? So again, all these three forces, that's why, um, that's why we generally call this field of thought the psychodynamic perspective or the psychodynamic school of thought because within the psyche, you have these dynamic forces that are constantly moving inside the individual, helping them to make decisions about the world around them, okay? Now, <clears throat> as the ego kind of works between the id and the superego, um, the ego creates, or you, ego, coming from the Greek word for I am, uh, it, the ego creates these distortions or these transformations of like certain urges that come from the unconscious. Basically, um, these defense mechanisms, as Freud would call them, they exist in order to help us manage the pulling of the id or the superego. Okay, so uh, you have a list of different defense mechanisms on uh, the slide there. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that you have to write every single one of these in your notes, but you do have to have an idea as to what each of these different defense mechanisms mean. So let's say, for example, denial. Okay, denial is when the ego, um, the ego struggles to accept the reality of the situation. In fact, this denial is a refusal to accept the reality of the situation. So um, this is where the ego really pushes down on the superego and, and says the id and lets the id kind of run a little bit freer. The id is like, everything is fine, nothing is falling apart, la 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 la. Um, and so there's this deny, 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 deny. Okay, and so um, the example I give, it's a woman who is pregnant refusing to acknowledge her pregnancy. I don't know how you can really refuse to acknowledge that you're pregnant you know but uh the the existence of a denial thing really is this is the struggle of the ego to try and to suppress the guilt of the superego okay that's what is happening there or another example is projection it's when you uh you mistakenly perceive unacceptable thoughts in other people in uh, and you do that because you want to avoid the fact that you have the same thoughts as your own. So, for example, like, um, okay, let's go with anger because anger is easily um, noticeable in other people. So, 
Uh, let's say that somebody's talking to you. Oh, okay, good one. Let's say that an authority f uh, figure is talking to you. Let's say that it's uh, let's say that it's a, a woman who is an authority figure who's talking to you, and and immediately as this woman is talking to you, you already hear in your brain that this woman is talking to you in such a disrespectful tone, a disrespectful manner, um, and she's just like coming at you, and she's being moody, and you think she's being moody, and you just hear the hatred in her voice, and you're just like, I can't believe you, and then you react in kind, you know, like, Obviously, you want to defend your own honor, so you're like, I can't believe that you're talking to me this way, you're so disrespectful, this and that, and so a fight exists. Freud could say, depending on how much you talk about it with him, he could say that maybe you're projecting your feelings, and maybe the reason why you're so angry at this woman is not necessarily because of her, but of what she represents, that there is this possibility that maybe you're reacting to her in such a moody and, and uh, you know, an angry manner because she reminds you maybe of the fraught relationship that you have with your own mother. Um, and maybe these are the things you would like to say to her, your mother, but you're saying it to her, your teacher, or this woman who may be an authority figure. So, this is where, again, the superego, the id, and the ego are trying to, like, manage each other. So the ego tries to defend itself and defend the existence of the psyche through these, like, defense mechanisms. So I've taken classes just on this alone. So uh, on, the, you know, on psychodynamic theory, not the whole class, but, like, we've spent you know, in grad school, we would spend several classes talking about this. So, I mean, this is a very interesting subject. And there are actually a lot of therapists out there, including, you know, like, including myself. I'm not a therapist, but, um, you know, when I used to do mental health work, uh, these types of ways of talking about the way that people react to other people in their relationships, um, these these are really helpful to kind of discuss. Um you know, so things like rationalization, creating acceptable explanations for unacceptable thoughts or feelings or actions. So this is kind of like the id saying like, you know, it's okay for me to look uh, because it's okay to me for, for me to lust after somebody or to look at somebody because I'm just looking. It's not like I'm actually having relations with them so to speak so it's this kind of like rationalization is like you know it's kind of unacceptable to look at somebody else like that uh, to be objective objectifying other people but like you know we we say things like you know you can always look just don't touch you know things like that but that's all rationalization um and we make justifications for the things that we do to other people so freud would have a field day with this for sure Okay, now, when we talk about how personality develops, this is where, I will tell you, this is where it becomes very difficult to talk about Freud's uh, theories because they come from places that don't necessarily make a lot of scientific sense, but we study it because this is, like, some of the original stuff that psychology had to work with for, like, a good... 30 to 40 years before the other schools started rolling around, like humanism, behaviorism, stuff like that. So just kind of work with me here. So Freud had this theory about the way that 
that um, personality and emotion developed. And so we call it the psychosexual stages of development, okay? So this is where it's going to get a little weird, so prepare yourself. So very similarly to like the developmental theories that we've talked about in in the previous unit in developmental psychology, um, you know, we kind of as psychologists or people who study psychology, we kind of believe that, that there are specific periods or stages in which certain people, in which most people will progress through. Um, and Freud had his own. What's interesting, though, is that, like, um, just as a caveat before we head into um, talking about this, people like, uh, for example, Eric Erickson, actually, most famously, he, his theory of uh, psychosocial development actually arises through a different understanding of Freud's original theory about the stages of development. Because if there's anything that the psychodynamic school has given to psychology, it's the need to emphasize the emphasize relationships and the impact that relationships have on us but let's not put it off any further let's head into understanding the psychosexual stages of development so freud breaks down all of life into five major stages and it's based off of the the erogenous zones of the human being now erogenous referring to like the areas of the body that would necessarily cause sexual stimulation okay so he believed freud because part of his understanding of the id was that we had a sex drive or the libido that exists in us from birth and so the development of this libido this id like this uh sexual idea inside of us um, really move to present itself even in our personality, okay? So the oral stage exists from birth to two years. And so he obviously related this to the fact that, like, um, a lot of the pleasure, I guess you could say, uh, a lot of the satiation of our lives comes from tasting and sucking. And if you think about it, babies use their mouths to, to, um, to not only feed on milk from mother but also like use it to just kind of like sense the world and so um now if a person let's say got stuck at this stage there would be a particular or fixated there would be a particular problem associated with this so for example like if the person got stuck at the oral stage which again he says should be from birth to two years old but if you get stuck at the oral stage this could necessarily predict an addictive personality or a dependency problem so the idea of like drinking and smoking or eating or nail biting all associated with the mouth um he would say that the reason why you have these issues is because you weren't satiated enough as a child with your mother um in the you know feeding from her breast and the tasting of things you know like you didn't have enough of that pleasure from oral stimulation um another thing uh this is kind of like as it goes along it's it really does get strange um so you have the anal stage which is focusing on like controlling the bladder and the bowel so remember from like for 15 months to three years you kind of like have this emphasis on like the child being able to potty train and to use the toilet on their own but if you didn't know how to control that 
you would be uh, you would be considered either anal expulsive, which is a person who is very messy, messy and wasteful and destructive, or anal retentive, which is a person who like kind of like in a way clenches their anus so tightly that they're very orderly and rigid and obsessive and strict. Um, and so he would say that that's the anal stage. The phallic stage, which obviously refers to the idea of a phallus or a penis, the primary focus is, is on the genitals. And so this is where the child from three to six years old starts noticing that there are differences between men and women and boys and girls. And so a fixation on this stage could lead to a sexual deviancy or confused sexual identity. So interestingly enough, Part of the reason, like earlier in psychology, psychology history, um, when the diagno the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which you know as the DSM, comes out, homosexuality was actually considered not just a crime in society, but also a mental disorder. And part of it was because there were a lot of psychologists who subscribed to Freud's ideas, believed that... Um, it was because people were stuck in this phallic stage that they engaged in sexual deviancy away from the binary heterosexual norm. And so, uh, interestingly enough, also, like, there is this idea of penis envy, wherein girls who felt like, or who expressed, or women who expressed this idea of, like, inferiority or envy, um, the reason why is because they haven't, differentiated the fact that they don't have a penis and they're very envious of the fact that they don't have a penis so that's what motivates the envy if you're like what <laughs> at this point i understand it's definitely a weird concept to kind of take in so uh i'm not saying that this is something that we continue to use in the field but it is something for us to kind of think about what is freud trying to communicate to us through this so from six years old to puberty is what we call the latency stage um and this is where your sexual desires get pushed to the background and so more socially desirable pursuits get pushed to the forefront like so a lot of the energy that would normally be directed towards like the sexual pleasures of things uh would be would exist towards like um understanding the mechanics of social relationships and then the genital stage which is from puberty to adulthood so sexual sexuality becomes renewed during this time and so you would seek relationships with others not just you know like platonic friendly ones but obviously sexual and romantic ones and so um, really, in the genital stage, it's kind of like the catch-all stage for all of the other stages. So if you haven't been able to resolve any of the other stages, they would appear much later on in Freud's kind of understanding of how people develop. Again, for Freud, a lot of the, a lot of the reasons why uh, you know people have the issues that they do, is because they haven't been able to resolve the other stages of development, very similarly to what we understand about the other development theories. But his was particularly focused on the outward sexual desires of things. Okay, 
Now, some obvious critiques of Freud's research. One of them is, you know, with the instruments, the instrumentation that I told you about earlier, he does, we do have some criticisms of Freud, like the research methods, like free association and um, noticing Freudian slips and dream interpretation is not necessarily a scientific pursuit. It's a lot of subjectivity and it's relying on case studies that are really difficult to generalize to a lot of people, which is something that we do pursue a lot, we try to pursue in psychology. And as you can tell, Freud's research is really based on this very male-dominated society. It's very patriarchal. Um, the whole idea of penis envy is something that to me is a wild idea because it's not like women are necessarily envying this idea of a penis. It's completely odd. Um, Furthermore, uh, Freud's research is very much a reflection of the time that he lived in. He lived in the Victorian age of Europe, and and generally during this Victorian age, like people were definitely sexually repressed. Um, sexuality was something that was taboo. I mean, like, and a lot of things that we kind of don't realize that exist. Um, like, for example, cereal and graham crackers were actually devised by people as ways to repress people's sexuality. Yes, graham crackers were created in order to repress people's sexuality. Um, and so it's kind of like a wacky time for people to think about who they are. But again, it's important that we study this so that we can make real conclusions about the world. Like, the more that we kind of, like, interact with the universe around us... Um, and make theories and then debunk them, the more we know about the way that the world works. So that's why we perpetuate the study of who Freud is. And realistically, some of the strengths of his research is that he makes the connection between healthy childhood and healthy adulthood. Um, and the other research supports the idea, like other research in modern times supports the idea of defense mechanisms to preserve one's self-esteem, one's identity, one's um, you know, purpose and who they conceive themselves to be. And really and truly, Freud points to the idea that biology and the original relationships that we have uh, with our parents and with caregivers really does impact the behaviors that we engage in later. So if there's anything that Freud gave us, it's it's the, the beginnings of understanding like the nature versus nurture debate and and really forcing us to consider what is the true nature of the human soul, the human mind. And it's a lot deeper than we may actually realize. And so for that, we can kind of thank Freud and even people like Alfred Adler, who are some of the Neo-Freudians, um, I'm actually going to be talking about that in the next podcast, so that way we cover everybody in total. Well, Bulldogs, that's it for today's lecture on topic 7.6, where we discuss the various theories of personality arising from the psychodynamic school of thought, focusing specifically on Freud's theories. Make sure to join me for the next podcast where we will discuss personality theorists after Freud, focusing on Carl Jung, Alfred Adler, and the behavioral theories of personality. Until then, 
Happy learning.